0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Happy Paws, presented by FearfreeHappyHomes.com. Happy Paws is a podcast by pet lovers for pet lovers. We take a scientific and evidence-backed approach to helping you understand your pet on a deeper level. On this episode, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Evan Anton, star of Evan Goes Wild and wildlife conservation advocate. We discuss his work with both small animals and exotics, what drives his passion for his work, and how we can live our best fear-free lives with our pets.
1: Hey, Evan, I'm so excited to have you here with us today.
2: Yeah, I'm pumped to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So the last time I saw you was a few years ago in Florida, which was super fun. And I know that you've become good friends of our family. And I do have to say for anyone that's listening and you can't see Evan, Evan is a very good looking man, not only very good looking, but you you were named the (laughs) sexiest man alive by People Magazine. And for how many years now has that been? Well,
2: it was the sexiest vet alive. I can't take credit for the sexiest man alive. I wasn't on the cover (laughs) of the magazine, but it was for three years. Wow. uh,
1: 2014,
2: 16, and 17.
1: Oh my God. That's quite the accomplishment. Well, I, I yeah. definitely, the the thing I wanted to say with that is that, you know, not only are you, I mean, definitely very good looking. I remember when we went to the Capitol grill for dinner and, and all these waitresses and hostesses are like, Oh my God, who is that? And, and, uh, you know, you, you definitely have that look, but I think far more importantly is that you are just a really good person. Like you have a great sense of humor, super passionate about what you do. You are just very talented with all of your work. So whether you're working as a vet, you are doing TV, you're creating some really great posts for social media, like just incredibly talented and you just have a really good heart. So I think that that more than even just physical looks, you have both. So I have to start off oh, with that preface. That, That's very yeah, true. Thank you
2: very much. That's really sweet. And I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm lucky. I'm passionate about what I do. And you know, I've uh, I think I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing and feel very fortunate to find that.
1: So how so I I'm just curious like in your career how did the whole sexiest vet thing come about like how how did you start that like through social media did someone find you like I can imagine you probably got quite a bit of attention uh, being you know in vet school and things like that but how did all of that <laughs> start for you
2: Um so yeah no that 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 kind of came to me I mean so I'll tell you I before I was in vet school I did have a vision of doing kind of what I'm doing today. You know, I was really inspired by people that were had a big platform and a voice in conservation. Um, even growing up as a kid watching, you know, Steve Irwin and people like him and Jeff Corwin and whatnot and C and Jane Goodall and others just like promote wildlife conservation in such a big way, in a public way. I was really moved by that and I thought it looked really cool. And so, I mean, I, I wanted I I knew I wanted to be a vet at this time. I'm like 21 years old. And so I knew I wanted to help individual animals. But I also, you know, I knew I, I really wanted to be able to promote, um, you know, uh, you know, wildlife conservation and uh, good vet medicine. By the time I'd become a vet, and then just, you know, even even, you know, how how we can best take care of our pets um, on a big scale. And so I started making YouTube like educational YouTube videos. I'd be out in the wild and like catch a cool snake or a lizard and <laughs> start talking about it. Made like little short episodes like that. Um, and so my vision was not so much like a sexiness thing. It was more like, I wanted to be like more of a rugged getting in the bush, but also, you know, doing the veterinary work, um, in the field and in the hospital. Uh, but people magazine reached out to me in 2014 and, um, this was their idea and, and they, um, reached out about that. And I thought, yeah, you know, I mean, I was, I, I, I originally was like, man, I don't know. Like I want my colleagues to take me seriously and the profession to take me seriously. Like that's super important to me uh, to this day. Um, but I thought, hey, you know what, if this can bring, you know, attention to my platform and people see what I actually do, uh, and, and have an interest in, in the things I want to promote and raise awareness on and whatnot, uh, they great. You know, it's, it's more eyeballs and I can, I can, um, I can make the most of this and it can be a positive thing. And I'd say overall it has been, I mean, it's, a, it's been a very positive thing. I'm really thankful for that. And I'm, I, you know, I'm really appreciate people magazine for that too. And, but, uh, no, it wasn't like I was working towards being a sexy something, (laughs) you know, at any point. (laughs) You're like, should I be a
1: a sexy cook, a sexy teacher, sexy, okay, we're going to go with the sexy vet. No. You know, what's really
2: funny you say that. So the first episode, or the episode, the the, the first time I was in that that SMA, the Sexiest Man Alive magazine, it was a a category called Men at Work. Um, And on the same page as me was uh, was a, a, a legitimate school teacher. He was no the sexiest way. teacher, yeah. <laughs> and then on, on it was maybe the next page or something. There was a cook, and he was oh like the sexiest God. chef or the sexiest cook. Yeah, it's so I funny. Was just so it was all that these up. different. No, you nailed it. You 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 could you should be working with people now. <laughs> yeah,
1: I should. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. So, so in what way? So I I like how you were talking about like with your career, and I I definitely like your content is awesome. I love looking at all that you're doing, and whether you're helping animals in the clinic or you're out in the wild helping animals. Uh, definitely you do really great work, but in what ways, like, have you found that people like maybe uh, have misunderstood you or, or maybe like underestimated you because of your looks? Have you found that to be the case in any way? Or maybe even, I know that for me sometimes, like when uh, you know, and that's something I've gotten past as I've gotten older. But I think like the, the really good looking guys in college or high school, it was like, oh, they must not be very nice. Like I kind of had that stigma about it. And then I realized like, you know, everybody is an individual and I've gotten past that point. But have you found anybody like kind of having different ideas about you than how you actually are?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's not until I meet people personally and then they'll tell me, man, I just assumed you were going to be a total douche. <laughs> you know, or I thought, I, th- I figured you're going to be an asshole and you're actually, you're pretty cool. We get along pretty well. I was like, yeah, man, I'm like, it's good. Like I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I mean, I'm not going around t- you know, telling people, Hey, I'm the sexiest, this or that, or look how, you know, look at me, this or that. It's not, you know, that's not my vibe. It's never been, but, um, yeah, that's, that's happened. Not, not, not in any, I don't know, as far as I know, it's never been like crazy detrimental or anything, but, uh, I've been told many times people have this assumption that I'm probably not super like a super cool guy actually in person.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's <laughs> that's definitely how you are. Like you're very humble, uh, very down to earth, and you have a good sense of humor. And I that's definitely the way it is with my family. Is that we love to tease and to be teased, and you definitely go along with that very well. So you are- well, your
2: family's next level when it comes to that so it's <laughs> oh part of the fun i love it <laughs> you have
1: to go along with it right <laughs> when did you first decide that you wanted to be a veterinarian
2: um i actually was in college uh, you know growing up i always knew animals would be a huge part of my life and I, I mean i grew up with a creek in my backyard i was always flipping rocks looking for snakes and frogs and i always we always had multiple pets you know and I, we always had at least a dog and a cat or a couple dogs and a cat or something like that you know um, and then I was in college, and I was taking some lo- lower level, like bio bio course and evolutionary biology. And like up to that point, I wasn't really that excited by school and learning. Like I just wanted to go play sports or be social and like party with my friends in high school. Um, and uh, I started actually as a business major at University of Colorado at Boulder, and but I took these science courses, and I just loved learning about it. Like I found it fascinating. Um, the more I learned, the more I enjoyed it, the more I just like totally got it. Just like, it super jived with me. And I realized, you know what, uh, for a second, a split second, I thought, man, maybe human medicine would be cool. But I was like, really? I mean, I love animals. I love working with my hands. Like I like the whole surgery game and that component of the medicine. Um, I love how you can do so much with medicine. I love learning the sciences. And so it wasn't until I was about 19. Years old where I was like, "No, this is, this is what I should be doing." And so I changed my major going into my second year of undergrad and um, pursued it aggressively, never looked back, you know.
1: So how has, has your actual career as it's evolved? How has it been similar to what you expected or hoped for? It sounds like a lot of it really has kind of evolved to being out in the wild and doing a lot of that work like Steve Irwin and Jane Goodall. And how has it been so somewhat similar to your dream, and how has it been different?
2: Um, it's been similar in that, I mean, so I was 19, realized I wanted to be a vet. I was about 21, realized I wanted to have a a bigger platform and not just be a vet helping individual animals, but also try to raise awareness and do kind of bigger scale things. Um, I was 21, I was studying abroad in Australia. And I, um, I started just kind of, I took a road trip out in the bush and started filming myself you know, catching different animals, talking about their natural history, mostly just reptiles and whatnot. Um, and, uh, continued that on. And so like, it's similar because, I mean, you know, a couple of years ago I had a show on Animal Planet called Evan Goes Wild and it was like my dream show. It was literally like what I envisioned. It was me getting to work with a lot of my favorite species and my favorite habitats around the world. Every episode's in a different country and I'm in Africa and uh, South America and Southeast Asia and, and beyond. And, um, it was really like what I wanted. I mean, um, that was super exciting. Uh, when I first got into wanting to do the media stuff, I mean, Facebook, I was on Facebook maybe for a year at that point. So this is in 2006. So maybe I was on Facebook for a couple of two or three years, something like that. Instagram wasn't really a thing at all. Um, and social media wasn't a thing. So like what I didn't expect or see was, um, was that component. I mean, like, the term viral, I don't know how big that term was, uh, back in 2006, you know, when I was in Australia and there were I, the, I, the I don't know what this term. I just, I'm not a big fan of it. It just feels weird to, to call myself or refer to myself as this, but I'm, you can be categorized me as an influencer, right. When it comes to Instagram, for example, um, that wasn't like a, a thing, you know, like there was just people that there was like, you know, celebrities for different reasons or famous people for different reasons, whether it's Steve Irwin or an actor or an athlete or whatever. But now we have this whole new category of, of people with platforms that just didn't exist. So that's one of the biggest new things. And honestly, it's, I'll tell you, I, I, you know, I rip on the term influencer, but Instagram and social media, it's been one of the biggest blessings in my life. You know, I mean, going kind of viral uh, on that was a was a, it took place at a different time from the people magazine stuff we were talking about and it was um that was huge for me i mean that was that was that really like opened up a lot of doors and opened up a lot of opportunities and um changed you know the abilities of what i could do personally and professionally in a big way
1: so in terms of social media and those social influencers i know in the the dog world for instance and in training Like a lot of it is really positive and I'm super behind it, but then there can also be the other side where there's a lot of misinformation out there and, uh, you know, maybe people that are representing things in a way that I, you know, that really is not aligned with like fear-free. Have you had any difficulty in that yourself of, of, you know, trying to, you know, walk that line of telling your truth, but then also, um. Trying to kind of face those mistruths in in a, I'm guessing what would have to really be kind of a delicate way.
2: And I'm so glad you bring that up, Mikael. That's that's, I'm sure that's a problem in every facet, in every industry, or every whatever. And you know, we're biased because we're really in the animal world, so that's where we see it. Um, but yeah, that's a huge problem, huge, not just in the pet space, and that's very real when it comes down to things as simple as diet. And we've got big flat platforms saying. You know, your your pet should be eating vegan or your pet should be eating a raw meat diet when, I mean, show me vet, veterinarians or nutritionists or professionals that would agree with this, um, these trends. And then when you get down into the wildlife world, it's a whole other beast. You know, it's a real big problem. So, for example, one of the biggest, uh, one of the big ones would be like, um, you know, seeing primates, uh, for example, chimpanzees. Uh, On Instagram, and there's a there's a lot of viral videos of chimps, you know, taking a bath with a a a dog or something, or playing on a playing, you know, using a cell phone, using an iPhone, or playing on Instagram, or wearing clothes, or looking like a pet. Basically, is what I'm getting at, right? Like a domesticated pet, like our dogs and cats, and beyond. Um, That's a big problem. So things like that, when those videos go viral, and all these people are engaging with it, commenting on it, liking it, sharing it, reposting it, everything. that actually fuels poaching of these animals. So most of those chimps you see, those are wild-caught babies. And so I've I've had the opportunity to work with chimps in the wild and uh, go to places in uh, in like the Democratic Republic of the Congo, for example, where they are poached and to get a chimp out of the wild, you can only take a baby. The whole family has to be killed and it is for bushmeat. That's an average of 20 individuals, 10 to 20, often more, often 30, often even more than that. So that many chimps die for this one baby and now this one baby is going to the illegal wildlife trade and it's got to survive this whole trek from you know tropical equatorial africa all the way up most of them go to the middle east and, and then and syria is a big hot spot for that and then they're shipped to southeast asia so I, I don't mean to get in that whole the whole story of that but what i'm getting at is social media fuels is one of the fueling you know aspects of that because people see the demand for this animal and so now they're, they're taking them from the wild and sending them to places like China and other parts of Southeast Asia for, for use as pets or for use as small, like little roadside, little, I don't want to call it a zoo because it's far from a zoo. It's not like a good quality zoo. It's like a little animal uh, you know exhibit. It's a, it's a mess. It's a mess is what it is. Um, and so same thing with like tiger cub petting, you know, and, t- and tigers and, and seeing big cats in captivity like this when you see a big tiger in a Las Vegas hotel room. Now we're fueling the breeding, the captive breeding of these animals when, you know, hey, when this thing's not a kitten anymore, and I'm talking about a young kitten, like three to four months, legally, you can't do any petting with them. You know, they're, they're, they're becoming more and more dangerous. What happens to those cats? They're either going to be sent to some other even crappier zoo from wherever they were bred, or they're sending them to Southeast Asia to be used as animal parts because the tiger trade is still alive and still, uh, there's still high demand for teeth, skin, uh, even tiger fat, tiger bladders, tiger animal parts. Um, and social media can help fuel that stuff. And so it can be a real problem when it comes to our our world of wildlife too. And um, it is a tough, you know, it's uh, it's not tough to walk that line. Like I try to raise awareness on that stuff. When I worked with chimps, I'm trying to explain to people, this is why I'm not interacting and playing with this chimp. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm working hands-on with chimp babies. If I posted a video of me, a white dude from America, playing with a baby chimp, it's probably going to do pretty well. But I'm not going to sacrifice that species for my own benefit. And there's other people that do. And these are the real people that should know better. It's one thing when influencers, they're in a completely different industry, whether it's acting or fashion or whatever. you know, And that's, that's great. They do their professional thing. And now they're playing with a you know, tiger cub in a hotel room. It's another thing where you do have some influencers where they claim that they're all about the animal world and promoting conservation and whatnot. But then you see them playing with these animals, where it's fueling the illegal pet trade. It's fueling the poaching of these animals, the 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 taking of them from the wild, and and uh and that's those those guys and, and get, you know people that do that should know better, and that's that can be really frustrating. And then there's people on social media that they use other people's footage and other people's content and say then oh we're making a difference, and they're they have they're much better their business strategy. They're much better at um, getting, you know, they have a bigger platform. So they're getting money from people saying, we're making a difference for this species when really they're really not making a big difference and they're making a lot of money. And all that money should really be going to the people with their feet on the ground and boots on the ground and doing the real work and uh, making a real difference Then don't have the big platforms, and people aren't aware of them and they're not as good at the business and they don't have the same means or resources to get their word out there, to get their work out there and the the awareness out there in the same way and this that's this, that's not new to social media that's been going on since the beginning I would imagine of charities and fundraising there's bad players and lots of them that claim to raise money in really just a little bit just enough to where they can say they're donating it here they're making a difference they're not paying taxes and they're cashing in so it's uh it gets pretty ugly and uh yeah
1: yeah so uh, talking about the chimps similar to the tigers one thing that I remember hearing when I was working in Miami uh, with some different primates there was uh, just that a lot of times the the chimps, like once they start to grow up and they mature, that a lot of times, especially those, so a lot of the ones uh, there, even like the capuchins, like a lot of them are surrendered. Uh, a lot of them don't yep. like, don't have teeth. Like they have, uh, yep. I mean, it's just, it's really sad. And, and when it came to the chimps, it was, you know, I was hearing that, you know, they are fairly nice they can be integrated you know people like will try and integrate them into the home as a young one but then once they reach a certain age they can become very aggressive and hard to live with and so then then that you know the chimp has to be sent somewhere and so then they it's like a very limited short time so i didn't realize that it was like that for the tigers too but um can you speak no to i'm that glad, glad you it? bring
2: that up it's yeah. like that with a lot of species and so this is a big misconception with the exotic animal or wildlife animal pet trade not just in other countries, or, or I mentioned China and Southeast Asia, but all over the world, the U.S. too. So, a lot of um, uh, animal wildlife rescues, where it's not just North American native wildlife, but they could have anything there. A lot of these are surrendered animals, and this could be raccoons, it could be primates, it could be cats of any species, it could be, I mean, really any of these mammals. Um, especially with the mammals, once they hit that sexually mature sexual maturity phase, they become a different individual. They're not babies anymore. Okay, so now they've got uh, these, you know, sexual hormones going through their body. They've got different motivations. They've got different, uh, they're just becoming different individuals. And they go from that cute, cuddly, harmless to being a real problem and a real danger to the people in the home. And now these animals are put in a terrible situation. They can't go back in the wild. They're going to got to be in captivity their whole life. And man, when I go, I I bet at these rescues, when you see primates, well over 90% of them, they're surrendered pet trade animals. that can't go in the wild. They need to live their life. And, uh, the, you know, the real sad thing is these animals have so much trauma, especially if they're wild caught. So for a lot of these chimps, for example, that I talked about, and this goes for a lot of other primates, not just chimps, but when they're wild caught, they see their whole family get killed. So now this baby has going to have a lot of PTSD. And we're talking about an animal that has the emotional complexity pretty much of a human. And in terms of the the emotions they can feel and the, the ways they can learn is really not super different from us. Um, so they have got a lot of trauma from that. Then they go to some home where they got to integrate in. And then they grow up and they've got to leave that and go somewhere else and potentially live with other chimps or in a new home. So they've got this like double PTSD thing going on. So the, the, the emotional well-being of these individuals is just tragic often. And uh, it's real sad to see, especially with such an intelligent animal like that. But yeah, the pet trade is—it can be a real ugly one, and um, that's something we see in animal rescues all the time. And I—I I feel like I'm just being so dark. This is going to be like the most depressing podcast. No, I—I
1: I feel passionate about this. But it's, it's this a brutal subject. reality.
2: Yeah, it sucks. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for for me, my uh, God, I would say it's my—I was going to ask you first of all, what is your soul animal? Do you have like one animal? You're like, that's that's my soul animal right there.
2: Hmm. I don't, I I don't know. I don't know. I feel like uh, you can relate to so many animals. Like the more I work with them, the more connection and like feel like I want that, you know, I would celebrate that being a part of my soul. I don't know. When I was a kid, I mean, I was obsessed with reptiles, you know, like dinosaurs and reptiles is what really got me excited. So like, and I still, I still am a huge reptile guy. Like I love working with crocodiles and seeing them in the wild and venomous snakes are just so special and incredible to me. And, um, it would have to be something like that. like there's a lot of misunderstood animals, and my heart always goes out to those guys, because they get a bad rap, and they're actually some of the most fascinating creatures we have, whether it is snakes or sharks or rats or, or what have you. You know A lot of people have these irrational fears towards, you know things like that, or different spiders, and they're such fascinating animals, So I'd, I'd have to pick one of those. It'd be one of the misunderstood ones and, and is actually a pretty cool and important um group that we have you know in our in our in our world
1: i'm gonna have to come back to that in a second because i have a couple questions for you there but uh for me my my sole animal is for sure uh an orangutan and i just they're just such uh, gosh just as you said just so human-like and just so sweet and you know i mean very very strong but like i mean just these i i i there's no words for me to describe just how much i love them and you know want to work with them. And that's like definitely something on my heart someday. Um,
2: oh, that's so cool. They are spe- they're the people of the forest. I mean, it's real. And they are very gentle apes. I, I got a, an orangutan story for you. Just, it just kind of demonstrates, you know, what, how strong, but also sensitive they are. So I, I didn't see this personally, but I was talking to a friend that um, he's a veterinarian these days or retired vet, but he worked, he was a keeper at a zoo uh, in his youth. So this is a few decades ago. Um, probably in the 70s or something. And he was telling me how he was working at the zoo. They had a sub-adult female orangutan. So she was not full-grown, but she was a pretty big orangutan. And they were building some kind of a bridge in her exhibit. And they um, there was construction workers there, and they you know had to, had to keep her in a space, and they were doing their job. Um, anyhow, they were taking a break, and she was just kind of roaming around. And this one guy, he had to cross the bridge to go grab something. And his uh, the keepers were like, hey, man, seriously, please don't do that. Like, you're really, it's too risky. I know she seems nice and cool, but really, really shouldn't do it. He did anyways. Um, and this orangutan was curious, and the bridge was over her. So she reached up to grab his foot between a couple of the wood slats and did so and pulled it down because she just wanted to see him and play or something, you know. And in doing so, fractured all his metatarsals, so like all the like foot bones, right? And just, and the guy's screaming and freaking out. And as soon as she did that and realized she hurt this person, she ran and hid into the corner of that space and was crying and felt so bad. And it like, it like, like, like it brings tears to my eyes. It makes me emotional. This, this thing, you know, she's just the sweetest thing. She's so strong, stronger than she knows. But at the same time, she never wanted to hurt anybody. Like it wasn't like that at all. She's just so damn strong. Um, but uh, yeah, they're they are. That's that's a good one. That's a really I, good one. I,
1: I believe that. Personally, uh, of, one of the girls, Jenna, that I was working with, I she was giving a tour one time to the people at, at Jungle Island, like, or just you know, telling them about the orangutans there, and and you know, you talk about the strength that one of the orangutans that was uh, super super. Uh, just curious, always curious and always doing something and uh, she really liked the shirt that Jenna had on that day and just with one finger she was able to snag off her shirt so like just grabbed it and she she decided she wanted it and so Jenna's like trying to like still like talk to the people and then all of a sudden her shirt is just gone. Yeah, she's going with all her strength and yeah and then you know she's wearing it, the ring tan's wearing it around the whole day and Jenna had to run off in the bushes and hide and run back in the, the little storage area until she could get help but, um, you know, the thing, the thing I, I loved about them, there was one that I connected with, especially named peanut and she was, she had leukemia. And as far as I, I know, at least at the time, it was the first time they had done chemotherapy on, um, uh, an orangutan. And so they were get preparing her to get her ready for it. And so we would do things like practicing, you know, injections every day and, you know, do different husbandry things like teach them to brush her teeth. And, um, you know, it's so different with them because it's like, they they are so good at imitation and it's just, you know, they get it in an instant. But what was so cool with Peanut is just like, she was just so loving. Like she just, and more than anything, more than training, more than like, um, you know, getting food, like she just wanted that connection. And And it's just like a person where you have this best friend, like she, for whatever reason, she and I just like clicked and, you know, got each other. And I remember one day though, she looked really upset. And I was like, Oh, what is she doing? And because they knew sign language. And so she was like, kind of slapping her hands in this big signal. And I'm like, God, she looks really upset. What is she saying? And, and Jenna's like, she's just telling you, get over here now, because she wants to hang out with you. And I was like, Oh, oh okay, that's nice. Like, yeah, like I so from that, that experience on, I'm like, you know, I, I am an orangutan fan for life. And the thing that that gets me, though, and like, you know, as you're talking, like, I feel your passion, because from that experience. And I, I felt like, God, I just have this call to, you know, help orangutans. And what got me was just like learning more about like how their habitat is being taken away. And uh, like palm oil is like stripping their whole area. Like, can you talk a little bit about orangutans and, and kind of their whole thing and kind of how they, um, how they need help too, just because, you know, that's definitely a cause I, I'm. Very-
2: Absolutely. You know, that's a unique uh, interesting species when it comes to that kind of thing. So, What's interesting about orangutans, um, well, as an ape, I'll tell you, they are far less, um, how do I say, like, uh, durable in terms of, um, or habit- habitable. I'm trying to think of the right word. What I'm getting at is when you look at certain animals, like a macaque, for example, macaques, man, they can, they can make it work anywhere, they can be successful in cities and jungles, and deserts, and, and all, all over the place. This species is so resilient and so adaptable. I think adaptable is probably the word I was trying to think of. Orangutans aren't so adaptable. And so they have really specific environmental needs when it comes to where they can live and survive in the wild. Um, and so they, they're not going to do well in communities or cities. They're not going to do well when the forest is chopped down. They need those trees. They need those plants uh, for their survival and their life and, and livelihood every single day for protection, for food, for all that kind of stuff. Um and so when those forests are cleared and destroyed, um, they're not they we're gonna lose our orangutans basically. Another thing that's kinda unique to them is their uh, their uh, reproductive cycle. It's one of the slowest in the wild. It's certainly one of the slowest, if not the slowest, amongst primates. Um and it's you know, they it's like every I could be getting this wrong, but I wanna say they're not having babies. A female one's not having babies more frequently than every seven or eight years and for some it might be even more um and it's uh yeah so like getting a population up when it goes down that's going to take time um and so when you have this animal that has really specific habitat needs and grows at a really slow rate uh the more we lose the deeper we get even compared to you know other species when it comes to their conservation they might might, bounce back a little faster but orangutans Uh, even if we did our very best it's still going to take time to get those to get to get our numbers back up um and then for all the things we were talking about emotionally you see how sensitive they are and you see how how all those things affect them and i mean for people that haven't really had the opportunity to work with apes um man it is just a little person when you work with a baby uh, when you see a baby orangutan and its mom or when i've worked with baby chimps for example i mean it's like, I love kids. I love playing with kids. And I'm telling you, it's the same thing. It's a little different. They're a little stronger and they play a little rougher. But all the same stuff. They like to be tickled. They like to laugh. They like to wrestle. They like to be sassy. They're little punks. They play with you and uh, they try to tease you. And I'm, I'm not trying to promote. They're not good pets because trust you, me. I mean, as, as we talked about, as, as you know, and I'm sure everybody listening knows, that's not going to go well after a few years. But um, my point being, they're just so darn relatable to people. And when you see the travesties they face, it's heartbreaking. It's really tough to see. And, you know, there's two sides to all those stories. You know, at the end of the day, the people involved in either their conservation or their destruction were all people. And it, it took me some time to, to, to realize that um, we're all getting resources on the land. You know, and and destroying the land for the resources that we want to use. If you have a cell phone, you're a part of this. If you really have pretty much anything, and you live in America, you're a part of this because there's habitat being affected by it. There's wildlife being removed or affected by it. Um, and then we just see that we're seeing it more in a direct way because it's on that that local level. You know, if it's if people you know bush you know poaching for bush meat. Or uh, there, you know, there's industry out there getting palm oil, and a lot of that palm oil is going to you know places to you know, it's being put in food that we buy. You know, it's in our grocery stores. A lot of it, um, yeah. And so it's it, it's uh, when you start ta- getting down that road, you know, it's really about talking about the industry um, and making a vote. And if I've learned one thing, as a human, uh, certainly in in America at least, but really anywhere. Money talks, you know. It's money. It's as simple as that. Follow the money. That's why this, you know, nasty thing is happening. That's why this, uh, that, that, you know, this or that's happening. That's why this industry is taking place. Even, you know, even if it's completely legal and everything, I mean, it's all the money. If we as consumers, you know, decide that we want to spend our money differently, the industry will follow. Whether it's, you know, food animal production in the U.S. or it's palm oil products, you know, coming from palm oil outside the U.S. Every time you're buying, you're voting, and um, that's what's gonna make a change. These people that are making the money, they just wanna follow the money. So we just have to kind of show them where we wanna spend our money. And that's not as simple as it sounds because a lot of these things, right now, the alternatives that are more environmental friendly or wildlife friendly or what have you, right now, they're more expensive for the most part. And so we need to find ways where we can do this more affordably and more effectively and more broad scale. But, um, yeah, uh, that's, 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 that's a challenging thing when it comes to the animal world and the wildlife world and the habitat conservation world too.
1: So speaking of animals and their natural habitat, can you tell us about your recent two trips to Africa and what you did there yes. and yeah,
2: absolutely. Okay. So I'll start with the first one, which was in September. Um, I had uh, the uh, honor and one of the biggest honors of my life of uh, being invited to the kwitidzina uh, ceremony in Rwanda, which takes place once a year. So that is the naming a wild baby mountain gorilla ceremony festival they have, basically. Um, and so, yeah, every year they invite uh, somebody to name one of the wild babies that was born within the last 12 months. And they celebrate it, it this big thing every year, this kwitidzina and, um, I was one of 20, uh, 20 babies were born. And so I got to name mine and I named it Igichumbi, which, uh, is Ki Rwandan. That's the, one of the, the primary language there. And it, tra- it's, it symbolizes like sanctuary, like, a, like having a protected place for the animals. Um, and it was a unique situation where this, this animal also needed some special help because his mother unfortunately died. Uh, that's another story, but, um, the baby's doing fine. Thank goodness. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was so special and it was so cool to see because when it comes to conservation in Africa, there's a lot of challenges there and, in other parts of Africa, you know, the local communities, you know, because they're people, they're going to utilize the resources on their land. And so they can be, um, their needs don't always drive well with the conservation of those areas and the wildlife, um, and, you know, because they're people and that's just, that's just what we do. Right. Um, Rwanda has made such an effort to make sure that the local communities and people living uh, amongst the gorilla habitat and around the gorilla habitat um, are benefiting from the conservation of these areas. And this is one of the cornerstones of conservation, not just in Africa or Rwanda, but around the world. Okay, Everywhere that us Westerners like to say, we want to conserve and save this animal, the elephant or the, the gorilla or what have you, and we're so disconnected and out of touch of the reality of these places, you have to understand that donations and westerners going over there and helping out it's not sustainable for long-term conservation once the money stops coming in that stops so one of the cornerstones i'm getting at is you have to make it so where the local community benefits more from habitats and species being intact than not otherwise they're going to do what humans do and they're going to utilize that land to live and make you know provide for their needs day to day um rwanda's made such an effort to make sure that these people benefit from it and then it's important for them to celebrate the gorillas and the tourism and the jobs and all the things that benefit these people are are worthwhile and 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 in their eyes worth protecting so they don't have to utilize the habitat. They want to celebrate their the natural world that they have in their country. And when I spoke um in the in front of this crowd on that day at Kuitizena, I'm talking to forty to fifty thousand Rwandans, I'm guessing, in the crowd. And this is one of the biggest conservation celebrations it's the biggest one I've ever seen. It's the biggest one in the world that I know of involving local community and their respective conservation. I mean, we celebrate animals on a big scale around the world, but to see it with the local community on that scale was unbelievable because I go to other parts of, of uh, say, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, and it's not that way. You know, It's a butting of heads. You know, I go to certain parts of South Africa, it's, there's a local community and there's poachers and there's other people and farmers and conservationists and, and Westerners and even other South Africans. And it's just, it's it's gonna it makes it so it's the conservation there is always going to be a battle. Um, and in many ways, a real life war. I mean, there's life lost in these areas because of the certain kinds of poaching that takes place and, and the desire and the demand for certain animal parts like rhino horn. That's a whole other story. I'm not trying to get into that. And, and I'm happy to talk about it. But what I'm getting at is seeing that community involvement is so important. And that's uh, it was beautiful to see that. Um, so yeah, I did that, did a hike, got to see the family of where the baby came from, which was very beautiful and special. Yeah, super, super cool. Uh, went to another park that was recently acquired by an organization called the African Parks Network. And they go all over Africa and basically come in and say, hey, this is a really beautiful spot. You guys don't have, um, you know, we, we can see that you guys don't have the, the, what you need to maintain this place and conserve it. What do you say if we come in, we manage it, and we help with the tourism in the area, and we help with the conservation of the area? Um, and, they, and like I said, they do this all over the place. And they have a really successful story on the other side of Rwanda, in eastern Rwanda, called Akagera National Park. And so they're, one of their more recent projects was Nyongwe uh, National Park in the southwest. And this place is stunning. It's some of the best birding in the world. It's like lush, tropical African jungle. Um, it doesn't have a lot of the big game, like you, like iconic animals you, you would think to see in, in Africa, like some of the rhino and some of the big antelope and stuff. But it's got really special wildlife there. And, and it was actually the first time I've had the opportunity of you know trekking and, and visiting with wild chimps that live in that forest that are protected in that forest. And I've only worked with chimps in rescues in Africa or in captivity in other places, but to get to see them in the wild was super cool. And this place was just so vibrantly green and incredible. Um, so that was really special. I got to meet a ton of cool people, uh, Rwandans, um, and um, a and, uh, ton of cool people around the world. But another thing for anybody listening, um, a lot of people are probably aware that Rwanda had a genocide in our lifetime. Well, maybe not yours, but uh, maybe, you know, maybe, yeah, I mean, it was in 95 you know so um yeah that was it was not that long ago right that country has turned around in such a significant way and it's so many people they don't know and they say oh my god you're going to Rwanda is that safe are you going to be okay Rwanda is literally the literally the safest country in Africa it is so safe it is so well maintained the resilience of the people the the leadership of the government um the forgiveness of the people i mean they they're just they're all saints they're angels to be able to forgive after the genocide they went through when neighbors and, and, and friends and family are killing each other just, you know, 30 years ago almost to, uh, to where we're at now, it will blow your mind. So I cannot stress enough. If you want to see some really incredible African wildlife or one is a great spot, you can go to Akagera in the east, which is your iconic African wildlife. You've got the savannah and the plains and the cheetahs and all that stuff and rhino. And then you can go in the west and you can hike with gorillas and 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 go to Nyungwe and see incredible jungle and chimps and all of it. It's a really special place and I can't speak highly of it enough with their uh, efforts towards conserving their 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 habitats and involving the community and everything I've said. It's a special spot.
1: Definitely want to be able to support those efforts for conserving that land in that area for those gorillas, which I I can't imagine. So like for you, what what are gorillas like? Like what how do you think that they differ in your mind, from other primates?
2: Uh, well, they're the biggest um, as a whole. So I didn't see, I wasn't looking at the biggest subspecies, but the biggest species of gorilla is the eastern lowland gorilla, which is the other, I was with the, hiking with the eastern mountain gorilla. So they're both a subspecies of the eastern gorilla. So the biggest primate, um, they're relatively peaceful. Uh, you know, like when when males are fighting, if it's over, uh, if there's territory issues or females, they'll beat up on each other pretty good. But they're not quite as violent as like a baboon or a chimp would be. Um, they 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 will hurt each other, but they're not always trying to kill each other or kill a whole family or anything in the same way. Um, and. Uh, uh, what else? I mean, they're. I mean, so like this is kind of a nerdy side thing. Like, I I like I love fitness. Like, that's another passion of mine, and exercise and whatnot. And like, man, when you see a gorilla, it's like seeing nature's little bodybuilder, in every muscle. Oh my God! I mean, just the lats on this on these silverbacks. So, a silverback is a developed adult male. Okay, um, all males become silverbacks if they grow up and and you know to to that age. Uh, and then there's always one dominant, you know, um, alpha silver back, but, um, the lats on this thing were like this, I mean, the forms on a gorilla are thicker than my legs. I mean, just the, 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 every muscle group is so developed and huge. I mean, their glute inserts like halfway up their back. I mean, they look like they would have like an eight foot vertical just based on the size of their glutes. I mean, every damn muscle is just so developed and huge. And it's just like, oh, my God, it's just one of the craziest things in nature. Like, to me, that's, that's one of the coolest things to see. Um, it's also really cool to see how gentle these guys are. Like, um, on this trek, these, these gorillas were, they were pretty busy. They were kind of foraging and on the move the whole time. So we're just kind of walking with them. But, like, the first time I ever hiked with gorillas also was in Rwanda a few years prior. And we saw a small family. And this big silverback, it was a silverback, um, his, his missus, who was at that time, the oldest reproducing gorilla in mountain gorilla in the area. Um, And then they had two, they had like a four or five year old, a three or four year old and then a baby like an eight month year old baby or eight month old baby. Um, And this silverback was just so big and beautiful and everything. But then he was so gentle. He was grooming that little baby and you see his like big Jimmy Dean sausage fingers just grooming the little baby and being so tender and sweet with it. And it was the sweetest thing. Um, it was, it was so cool to see, you know, they can just be such, such gentle, gentle, sweet animals, you know, but that's, that's, that's not unique to other, other apes, you know, apes, you know, they 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 can be with, with, when they're with their family and loved ones, I see the same with chimps, you know, chimps have a reputation of being nasty and violent and everything. And we hear these horror stories of chimps in captivity where they never should have been anyways. Um, you see them in the wild. I mean, I saw, you know, uh, big brothers playing with uh, and aunties playing with babies. And it's just, you know, they're, they're, they're so much like people. I mean, it's literally, it's just like people, but in their own chimp way.
1: Absolutely. So, so you talked about being more in the grassland area. And I did see on your Instagram, a video of you look like you were uh, trimming down or dremeling down a rhino horn. Can you explain more about that and why that's an important practice?
2: Absolutely. So that was uh, my more recent trip, and that was to South Africa. And we were in the Northwest province in a beautiful area called the Pinda Reserve. Um, Anyhow, so we trim rhino horn these days in many parts of of, uh, South Africa and in other parts of Africa where where there are rhino. Over 90% of our world's rhino are in South Africa. Um, And uh, the rhino poaching epidemic is a big problem. Uh rhino horn is the most expensive commodity pound for pound on the black market. I mean there's depending on the market, there's times where it costs more than a diamond per weight. Um and it leaves the country at uh you know, fifty thousand plus US per kilogram. And it, its final destination it can cost and it can be more than that. And it's final destination it can be, you know, up to two hundred or, or more, two hundred thousand US per kilogram of rhino horn when it ends up in uh Southeast Asia, primarily China, Vietnam and and you know that kind of area um so uh the poaching when it comes to that animal is not your you know typical uh snares and bushmeat kind of you know low budget kind of thing like there's a lot of big criminal activity there's been some pretty apparent implications of isis being involved because it's a way for them to make money i mean it's a it's a big thing Um, And it requires some intensive and expensive and dangerous security to own a rhino or have a rhino on your property. Um, So uh, yeah, the last, uh, probably starting like 2014 at the earliest maybe, Um, but we've been trimming rhino horn. And so we trim rhino horn because, you know, the way we look at it, uh, rhino without horns is better than a dead rhino. Uh, Most places can't afford to have rhino with horns. There are a few, there are some, and they have great funding. Um, and great protection, and it's it's great to see that. But not it, that's expensive, and most most you know private and public properties can't. And not all places trim their rhino, and you see a huge difference in poaching. I mean, huge. Like when we if we go to a park and we trim all the horns, we see a drop in poaching of well over ninety percent. I mean, it makes a massive difference. Um, and they some you know rhino without horns still get poached here and there. Like if they're following that rhino and learn it doesn't have a horn, they'll kill it anyways out of spite or because they don't want to waste resources or time or risk on following a rhino and that's not going to give them the bounty they need. So that happens, but um, it makes a big difference. And so you saw me with an angle grinder and I'm using a tungsten disc. And so it's actually a similar kind of thing you would use if you're trimming bovine hooves. Um, and we uh, we we the, the horn was already trimmed. Usually they're trimmed with either a chainsaw or a reciprocating saw um and then they trim off as much as they can then i'll go in with a disc and we'll grind away as much as possible we're just trying to make as little horn as possible on this rhino to make them as you know at least desirable as possible to potential poachers
1: Yeah, that reminds me so much of like the shark fin trade and like where a lot of times at least you will know far more about this than i do but i i've just you know like where the shark is taken just for their fin and then, you know, they end up like having this horrible death uh, just for that fin that makes uh, for good soup or whatever they might use it for. Um, Like what, what has your experience been in terms of working with, um, you know, sea life, I guess?
2: Oh yeah. No sharks. I mean, those are one of my absolute Mm -hmm. favorites. Also from a young age. Uh, I don't know why I had this fascination with some of these classically scary animals, but they're, they're so darn cool. Um, yeah, I mean, so that happens to, you know, probably about a hundred million sharks every year, this finning. And it's just like what you said, they'll cut off the dorsal fin. That's the big, your classic jaws, you know, fin. And then they usually cut off the tail fin too. Um, and then probably the pectoral fins. I mean, you, you'll, you'll, you know, you see these like dead shark bodies and they just look, look like little tubes, you know, no fins on them. All the fins cut off the rest of the shark discarded. Um, it's a big problem. It's happening all over the world uh it's not the only threat that sharks face it's not just finning they also get caught up in nets there's also long-line fishing and and uh and, and you know they're always getting caught up in this and that it's it's really unfortunate um but uh it, there's also a big misunderstanding when it comes to sharks you know i mean jaws was a good movie and i'm not hating on it but like it's it probably scared even more people about sharks and they got the total wrong impression they're not this vicious killer where they just they're on a mission to kill everything uh, and, and kill every all the people at all i mean statistically when you look at it really sharks are one of the last things you should be afraid of there are so many other scary things that you should be worried about including getting behind the wheel of a car or getting in a plane i mean uh it's like 150 people give or take get bit a year often less but usually you know something like that 72 150 160 something like that get bit People that are killed by sharks every year, average is like five. Sometimes less, sometimes maybe a little more. There's like three to eight people every year. So, when you're looking at th- big, you know, think big picture as a whole, it's just not a common thing. I mean, this is one of the craziest statistics, also a sad one. But more people die from being bit by a human in New York City than people that you know die from being bit by a shark around the world every year. You know, our domesticated dogs, dogs kill way more people than sharks every year. Dogs kill an average, I think, of around 150 or so people a year. Uh, More people die from getting struck by lightning. I mean, there's just there's all these all these crazy obscure ways to die is more likely than a than a shark bite. Um, So it makes their conservation a little bit more challenging. And so it's important to raise awareness for what does it mean when we lose 100 million sharks a year. So sharks play a huge role. In the food chain, and in a healthy, balanced marine ecosystem. And without sharks, we are going to run into big problems. And even if you don't like sharks, you should care about them because how fisheries and how, how you know when it comes to that whole cycle. I mean, it's it's going to destroy all the habitat of the ocean. It's going to affect everything. It's going to affect you whether you like sharks or not in a big way. Um, and so we want these animals to be a part of the food chain. We want them in the ecology from the smallest sharks to the biggest sharks. They play a really important role. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, it's really too bad that, you know, people want to eat freaking shark fins. You know, it's a cultural thing. It's tough when you look at cultural stuff because you want to respect others' cultures, but this is a pretty imposing culture and it's, uh, that cultural practice is, is, uh, it's asking a lot from the rest of the world and it's not cool. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully that's something that will the younger generations will move out of, but at this rate, it's not looking super promising, then that's going to go anytime soon,
1: so I remember in Florida, we were talking a little bit, so th- this is what made me think of it was uh, in terms of sharks, and I remember us talking about how sometimes people, when it comes to social media, will sometimes put themselves in very dangerous situations or situations that really. Put that animal at risk of behave, of acting in a way that could be dangerous for the human but essentially it's the person's fault because they're putting themselves in a situation where they really shouldn't be in the first place and maybe you know that kind of green lighting it for other people so you know i think of people you know maybe at yellowstone where we're getting in front of the bison to take a picture or we're getting way too close to that great white for this like how how have you seen that play out
2: yeah no i mean i think us as humans, especially Westerners and Americans, we're just more and more disconnected from our natural world. You know, I live in a place, I live outside of LA. And like, even on the clearest night, I'm not going to see all the stars in the sky, not even close. You know, there's too much light pollution. Um, you know, my little brother lives in New York City. I mean, he's it's, it's, it's you're just so disconnected with this and I think because we've been living that kind of life and we're so disconnected, even from our diet, you know, if you eat meat and you're going to the grocery store, you're buying skeletal muscle, just a specific part of the animal, and then ceram wrapped on styrofoam or something, you know, and you're not really seeing what this means and what, what it takes to do this, you know, to, to harvest this and whatnot. Um, sorry, my point being, we're so disconnected that I think people are losing or ignoring their instinct that they should have when it comes to engaging with some of these animals. And so this isn't black and white. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, if you see wild bison, you know, in Yellowstone, like, hey, you know, most of them might be pretty chill and they're going to respect your space and they're not trying to get into a confrontation. But you're you're playing with fire. You're taking a risk. And there might be a young bull or, a, you, know, a, a, you know, an animal that's like, hey, get the hell out of here, man. Like, we don't want you here. This, this is our space and you're not welcome. Um, at the same time, you know, there's, I guess I can just think of one exception. So something I, I do love to swim with sharks. Like it, to me, is one of the most special things in the world. And so there's, there, but you have to be intelligent with this. I would not just get in the water anywhere there's a tiger shark. Okay. Um, I know I just talked about how unlikely it is to be, you know, bit by a shark, but these are tiger sharks. Um these guys have a pretty diverse diet in the wild. If they've never seen a person or something, if they're feeling curious, I mean that's what a shark bite is. It's really just a puppy tasting something, but it's unfortunately a shark and it's huge and we're just little water balloons in the in the ocean and if we get bit, we we can be in big trouble. Um there's a spot in the Bahamas that I love, and it's called uh, uh well, it's we go to Bimini. And there's 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 um uh um what's the other one? Tiger Bay or whatever. I don't know. It's like the, it's a place where you can go swim with tiger sharks, and um Tiger Beach, sorry. Um and man, so these sharks, they're pretty used to people. They know people aren't food. Once you're under the surface of the water, these animals, like even crocodiles, they'll look at you differently. Like you could go in a place where there's man-eating crocodiles. And you're far less likely to get attacked if you're submerged and under the water. They don't look at you the same as like food. Whereas if you're paddling or making noise at the surface of the water, this triggers instinct for these, for these animals, you know. Uh, same thing with the sharks. So if we're going on a dive and I'm on a tank, you know, I'll just, I'll descend to the bottom. And we don't hand feed them or anything. We do have like, um, we do have like a crate that has like fish parts in it. And it's just the smell. The hand feeding's playing with fire. I mean, that's pretty risky. That's uh, it's really never good to feed wildlife. It becomes dangerous for them and or for people, and it's not not good for the animals. But just the smell keeps them around, and they're just swimming around you, and they're circling the box. And we'll get up to you know seven or eight tiger sharks, and you're just playing traffic cop because they're curious and they're not coming to attack you by any means. But they'll swim right up to you and they'll go right to your face, and you literally have to like redirect them, and you're just like gently redirecting you know a fifteen foot, eight hundred pound tiger shark and it's like the most crazy thing and it's definitely goes against human instinct but again this is a unique circumstance where there's been very few incidents um I'm not aware of any major ones with that specific kind of kind of situation where it's in the Bahamas with those sharks and they're so used to people so like you have to be kind of selective I mean just like with the hiking with the gorillas you know you could argue the same thing but these gorillas they they see trackers on a regular basis um, they understand these people aren't coming to disrupt them or hurt them. Um, they do it in a way where the gorillas are only exposed to humans um, for one hour at a time max, and maybe a couple times a week. You know, a few times a week. So, and, and we just, you know, if we're going to look for gorillas, we're just following them and seeing them from a distance and letting them do their thing. We we don't want to disrupt anything they would, you know, they would naturally do on their own. So you have to be smart about how you approach these things because, yeah, like we're going out in the wild and we want to celebrate and, and, you know, enjoy our natural world and its inhabitants. Um, but you have to you have to read the room and you have to, uh, you know, don't put yourself in a situation where you're getting too close to a bison or a bear or even a shark in certain areas, I suppose, or a big cat or whatever it is, you know. y um, Yeah. It's, it's tricky, but not kind of,
1: <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I like how you say that. And like, it is very much of that. A lot of that is situational and just, it's interesting that concept of, you know, being on top of the water for an alligator or crocodile versus being in the water. So w- when we think of alligators, crocodiles, like what, what makes you passionate about them? Like, how do you think they are misunderstood as a species?
2: I mean, I think there's a lot of fear for them. Um, and in certain areas, you should have a healthy respect for them. I mean, a, a crocodile is, is one of the few animals um, on the planet where a human can um, be looked at as a meal in a in a real way. You know, I mean, when sharks bite people, they generally don't consume them. They just test bite them because they're really not on the menu. But an alligator or a big alligator and um, some of these bigger crocodile species like, yeah, I mean, that's they will eat you you know that's just that's that's something they might do um so people are afraid of them and they're you know they people probably think they're ugly or something you know I mean I think they're freaking stunning I mean they're so beautiful to me oh they're so cool they have beautiful eyes their whole the big scoots that post-occipital scoot the big one right behind their eyes on the big crocs I mean they're just the most stunning things um and they're uh you know they're they're kind of modern day dinosaurs you know I mean they're some of these species have, have, you know, been around evolutionarily pretty unchanged for, you know, hundreds plus million years, you know, and they're still, it just goes to show you, it's a testament to how successful they are and how successful that design is over the course of time and geologic time, you know, in, in the wild. Um, and uh, yeah, I I don't know, I, I can't explain it. Like, I people ask me, why do you like venomous snakes and sharks and crocodiles and it's like I can't totally put my finger on it but it's just this innate inexplicable fascination that just really draws me to them Um, and I love getting to work with them and I love seeing them in the wild.
1: So when you were talking earlier about liking some of those like creepy crawly things like My big thing, I don't, I don't know what it is. I, I actually was on a a podcast recently, and they introduced me with, uh, Mikkel's a lover of all animals and loves to train all animals except for bugs and uh, (laughs) like basically insects, beetles or spiders. I, I, it's an irrational fear. Like, how have you ever had to like overcome a fear like that yourself in any animal that you've worked with, or like how do you get past something like that? Because it's I mean it's totally rational I know it is and yeah I'm like I I would like to fix it but man it's hard.
2: Yeah, right. Um yeah, no. I've I've never experienced that and I'm I'm <laughs> thankful for that, you know. Yeah. It's 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 nice because it would be funny if, you know, with me and what i do if i was like oh you know like ace ventura was like eked Uh out by bats or something right like it Uh was like the funniest thing
1: so there's nothing Uh, like that for you interesting no i
2: mean every animal has its like its own like its own unique adaptations Mm. that make it interesting and fascinating and successful in its environment where it's native to so to answer your question about how to get over it um honestly i think the right kind of educational exposure is the right move okay so i have i'm I'm lucky I've been able to do this for many people over the years um especially with things like snakes um i've often had have had pet snakes, so I can't tell you how many times you know actually one of my favorite stories this was a couple of years ago um the last place where I was living, one of the my neighbors was freaking out there was a California king snake in her yard um and she was a mom she had young kids, and she had three little girls with her. I think they were all her daughters and they were probably, you know, four five and six kind of thing, like pretty young kids. Um, they're hiding behind mom. She's freaking out. And it's a California king snake, non-venomous, super neat animal, beautiful. They're like black and white, horizontal stripes, bands really going down that length of their body. And it's, it's a cool thing to see, in, you know, in the wild um, or even in your neighborhood. Um, so I pick it up and I show them uh, and I explain, hey, listen, OK, so. Number one, the snake's harmless. The last thing it wants to do is hurt you. You know, it's far more afraid of you than you are of it. And luckily, it was a pretty mellow individual. Sometimes, when you grab a snake, excuse me, sorry, they can they can be pretty snappy and pretty, pretty, uh, pretty aggressive and whatnot or defensive rather. And um, this one, I mean, once I had it, it really it was pretty tame. It was, it was, it was, it was convenient in that situation. Um, and then I explained to them the importance of these snakes, where if we didn't have snakes, we'd have a real problems you know we'd have rodent populations getting out of control that's going to spread disease that's gonna affect you and I okay um and it can affect our crop it can affect our, our health all this stuff you know we th- these are, these are a real important part of the ecosystem um and then i um i was i, I just kind of talking about it and looking at it, explaining these things, and then I asked one of the little girls it was like you guys should just give it a touch. You know it's cool. Have you ever touched a snake? And maybe I started with that. Have you ever seen a snake in person? Have you ever touched a snake? Do you want to? Do you want to see what a snake feels like? And so I give them the tail end. I have the head in my other hand, and and uh, the the youngest one does. She steps up, and she's you know she's brave, and she was afraid, I think, more because mom was. It was more learned for her. I don't think it was necessarily innate, um, innate irrational fear in this in this young child, but. Uh, she was like, whoa. And then as soon as she did that, the other two girls are right there. And this, this situation went from, oh, my God, I'm so afraid of this thing that I don't really know much about to I've learned some things about it. I've interacted with it and I've touched it. And these little girls were like, mommy, mommy, can we take can this snake be our pet? Can we take it home? And like it completely 180. And I, I mean, I've done that kind of thing so many times. I mean, even other friends. I was with friends in Puerto Rico. And we saw this gorgeous Puerto Rican boa, which is a, an endemic species there. It's a beautiful snake. It's a speckled, like, it's kind of a mottled, like, charcoal gray, black and brown pattern. And it's really, really pretty. And we saw a nice size uh, individual, probably, like, five feet long or so. Um, and same kind of thing. And we, there was a couple people there that were deathly afraid of snakes. And we were not going to change their mind in that experience um but uh some of the others yeah they were afraid of snakes they weren't comfortable around them they never touch a snake or seen a snake and when i was able to explain some of these similar things but you know relative to that species and it you know what it does in the habitat how it hunts what it does why we shouldn't be afraid of it this and that and get them touching it complete 180 and then when i've had friends that come to my house if it's a reptile you know snake i have you know i'll try to um change their mind about it but long story short sorry i kind of went off there. Um, yeah, I mean, for you, if I was with you and we had an opportunity where there was uh a neat beetle, for example, I bet I could share some things about a cool beetle or at the very least you'd say, Wow, that, that is pretty cool. Like that's actually a pretty neat insect. And then I'll tell you, the more I learn about insects and the more I see them, and the more species I see with my traveling around the world and all the wild stuff you see out in the bush, um, they just get more and more fascinating. I mean, the insect world, it's like I, they're like the inspiration of so much creativity in art or in science fiction or what have you. And you can see it firsthand when you see these wild roaches and beetles and praying mantises and spiders. And when you look at them, like one of my favorite things, and some of my favorite pages on Instagram are these macro photographers where they get these like super high def, super close up lens shots. And you see every little detail down to the little hairs. On a little, you know, wolf spider, jumping spider, an ant, or uh, whatever, and they're just they're to me like some of the most beautiful things in our natural world, and I just they're they're very very neat, and I I think you just need some gentle exposure and, and the right kind of exposure, to to understand that hey these are actually pretty cool, and I'm not I shouldn't I don't need to be afraid of them you know.
1: Yeah, I I think you're so right. I I definitely, you know, just thinking about that. I used to be afraid of reptiles, and then I got a bearded dragon named Frankie, who just like totally changed right. me. A huge fan now. And same thing with snakes. Like my friends had snakes and worked with some at an animal sanctuary, and now I'm like, oh, I'm totally a snake girl. Like I love them. So yeah, maybe I see that positive exposure with bugs. And yeah,
2: I think you will. Yeah, it's, if you. Yeah, I mean, some people have the really deep fear, and that's going to take mm-hmm. maybe a little bit more time. But for you. It sounds like it's just, I mean, they're so unrelatable mm-hmm. to our dogs and cats or people, you know, as mm-hmm. species. And it just looks weird and it just doesn't make sense. But, um, yeah, it's, it is fun when you can change minds. And I bet yours could easily be changed, especially if you've already done that with those other species.
1: I'm going to start looking at, at uh, them a little bit differently in the future. Try and find some appreciation. And like you said, I think the educational piece is so important. Yeah. I mean, they
2: never want to hurt you there's mm-hmm. no insect that's ever trying to attack a person unless you're encroaching them or getting in their space they might sting you or something like some of the flying insects but really like if you're not messing with them you got nothing to worry about mm-hmm. they and always play so into cool. my
1: hair that's it's I think I think that's why I get freaked out with the beetles like it's yeah. a thing yeah where they always go right into the hair but it's, uh, I guess it's not that would called,
2: be kind of but... weird I'm sure yeah but yeah but it's just you know they can't hurt you
1: mm-hmm. really,
2: there's no there's no way they can hurt you um, uh, well there's uh, there's some Crazy Uh-oh. exceptions that I can tell you a wild, <laughs> it's a uh-huh. crazy story. Um, but uh, yeah, really, no, they, they're not going to hurt you. Even if you have to grab it, you'll feel their little pokey legs. And there's mm-hmm. some of these beetles are strong. Mm-hmm. And when you hold them in your hand, I mean, you can feel them like opening your hand and pushing out and everything. It's so fun and crazy to me pound for pound, just how powerful they are, but they can't hurt you. It's just kind of weird. And like maybe mm-hmm. throws you off when they, when they get there. But yeah, that's the man. Mikael, there's so many other things we should be afraid of, and most of that has to do with people, in my yeah, opinion.
1: You're totally right. I've, oh, well, thank you. I, I will. I will try and have a better outlook on it. And yeah, just that. I love your excitement. Like you get me excited about even like insects, which I like. That's a talent. So very cool <laughs> that you're able to do that. So when well, I'm we think- lucky.
2: I've seen a lot of cool species.
1: When we think of like emotional states, and we're talking about that like with us people, when you think about it with like reptiles or any of the exotic animals that you work with, I know fear-free has been a change that's happened, you know, in the veterinary industry and like being able to have a less stressful veterinary care experience or handling experience. Like, how do you think fear-free applies to exotic animals and any of those other like pocket pets even or other ex- exotic animals you may find in veterinary practice that people may not um, necessarily apply if you're free to, um, though they really should.
2: Well, it's such an important topic and I'm, I'm really glad you bring that up. I mean, that applies to any species we work with in their own way. So when it comes to some of the other, for example, you mentioned pocket pets, I think mm-hmm. like, uh, for example, like, like rats or guinea pigs yeah. or, or, or rabbits. Mm-hmm. Uh, would be some of the common ones we see as veterinarians in practice, right? Yes. Um, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Honestly, there are so many parallels. What substrate do we, it's as simple as what do we ha- what are we putting them on if we're looking at them on an exam table? What kind of substrate do we have them in? Um, talking about, you know, learning more about this species, like uh, these are such social animals, all three of those rats, guinea pigs, and bunnies. You know, you should never own just one, ever. Well, I say ever. There's maybe some some certain behavioral exceptions, but really, I mean, these are social animals, and having just one is like it's it's like putting a person in solitary confinement. In a way, you know, they can bond with their owner, so it's not quite like that. That might be an exaggeration, but they need to have friends, and they do so much better with that. So, um, understanding the emotional capacity of these animals, which is far beyond what most people realize, um, you know, there there are ways that we can uh, understand their emotions and what stresses them out. At home and at the practice, Um, and it makes a big difference in their experience and their quality of life at home and their experience at the practice. And and a lot of it you can extrapolate from the fear-free program, and it's going to be quite similar, especially with those mammals. But this applies to all these different species you work with. For example, with uh, with a chameleon, for example, it's not a mammal at all. It's a very different animal. But chameleons get they do get stressed when they're in people's hands. You know, they're much more comfortable on branches. And so unless I need to handle a chameleon, you know, you have to weigh out the pros and cons of why we need to do what we do. So if I need to look at, uh, look at their vent or their mouth or this or that, you know, I'm going to have to handle a chameleon, but it's, it's the, 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 you know, the, there's good reason for it and it's justified. Um, But if I'm just visually observing them, I try to have them on a branch and I let them crawl on a branch and I can learn so much before I even touch them. You know, just like when we walk into a room and we look at our dogs and cats and rabbits, um, we can learn so much before we even put hands on this animal. You're, you're taking in all kinds of information about their emotional state, their behavior, their physical health, and so on. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, there could be a fear-free, there's so many, the, the fear-free, you know, uh, information, you know, options are really kind of endless because every species is going to have its, its own versions of it, but there's going to be a lot of overlap amongst these different species. So from what we have with dogs and cats, Tons of overlap mm-hmm. with other animals we work with in the field in the hospital, or even understanding our pets better at home
1: and like for you, when you are out in the wild and you are are out doing some of of your trips where you're doing veterinary work, like in what way are you needing to be aware of the animal's emotional state at the same time that you are looking to deliver that physical care for them
2: yeah that's a that's a great question too um so, yeah, if we're out in the bush, I mean, depending on the species, like for most the mammals, for the most part, you just need to sedate them. Um, so when it comes to their emotional well-being, it's more about trying to figure out a space where we can get them to and work with them that's not so dangerous. But you need to take into account the emotional state of the other individuals they're with. So if you're sedating, for example, um, an alpha male gorilla. Or chimp, you got to think about where the other alpha, where the other competitive males. If they see that their alpha is down and out for a couple hours, are they going to try to take control? If this guy wakes up slowly from anesthesia, are they going to try to hurt him and then take control? Are we going to screw up the whole social dynamic of this of this group of this family? Um, Are we going to affect you know if we're working with cape buffalo, you know, same thing like are we are we going to affect? the dynamic are we going to stress them out are we going to separate them or you know there's all these things you have to take into account for some of these big dangerous mammals that we sedate um but even if i'm working with say a wild crocodile or something you know with reptiles especially crocodiles there's like usually a, a clock and you just have to give it a little bit of time they're going to be some of them could be really feisty and challenging for the first 5 minutes or 10 minutes and then they calm down and then we work with them and we try not to waste time. Stress can kill these animals. So we have to move fast. That's super important. And that's, that goes, the stress killing animals goes into with a lot of species. You know, I mean, that's, that's a huge component of vet medicine, especially with wildlife. Time is tissue, we'll say, especially like with surgery with birds, for example, or, or sedating a lot of these different animals. We have to be super careful. So, um, yeah, all those things come into account. I mean, even if I'm working with a rabbit in the hospital. You know, if they're really high stress and they're having, you know, observable like fight or flight mentality, and you can just, you can totally see that, that makes it a lot more stressful working with them. And if we're going to put them under anesthesia, they're at a higher risk now, simply just from that. Um, The same thing with a a sick bird. If a sick parrot comes in, you know, the hospital, I'm working with one out in a wildlife rescue somewhere around the world, um, and they're really sick. Birds, parrots especially, they're they're this one group of animals where they can just die in your hands. They just just arrest and they just get pushed over an edge. And when they're sick to a point and stressed to a point, you have to be really intentional and selective with what you want to do and when you want to do it. So I've had sick parrots where, man, I really need to get blood work on this bird. I really need to get x-rays. But honestly, I don't think he's a good candidate or she's a good candidate for this right now because I don't want to push her over the edge. So we're going to put in an incubator. We're going to put a towel over it. We're going to keep it nice and warm and quiet. We, we might give her some fluids and you know just 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 turf her in there for a minute, and, and give her some pain medication or antibiotic. We you know whatever looks warranted, um, and give her a minute to kind of settle down. Because if we push her too far, we we could push her over the edge. So yeah, with any of these animals, taking that into account is huge, um, in in the in the exam room and in the bush.
1: Oh, really good points there. I, I imagine so I'm I'm just thinking of you know with Fear Free, we really focus so much on body language. And that that for me has actually made me far more comfortable working with birds now that I understand, okay, this body language means this, this means this. And it can help a lot with like how we approach or, or interact with them. Like for you, you work with so many different species. Like do you kind of educate yourself with each animal that you are working with on their body language or, or how do you do that?
2: yeah and there's a lot of parallels from mm-hmm. people to dogs to reptiles. Mm-hmm. You'll see things um, and my education in that has really just been from hands-on experience and just learning and, and every time I work with an animal i'm i'm you know' you're, you're subcon- not subconsciously, but you're you're taking in that information you're learning about them you're you're learning about their behavior you're learning about um, you know uh, how this species or this group of animals Um, you know, communicates those things to you. And that's what I mean, that's what I love about working with animals they are so honest. They're not going to lie to you if they're acting shy, they're acting defensive or they're acting happy or they're content or they're passive, whatever they're showing it. They're not verbally saying it in the English language, but they're making it very clear um, from from a dog to a crocodile or a snake. You know, you can see these things and it's all evident. You know, if you have a lizard, a big monitor lizard. And it's looking at you, its eyes are bright, its posture's high, it's puffing up. And it's looking like, hey, man, I'm about to try to bite you or tail whip you. Versus you have a lizard that's casual, it's laying down, its head is rested, its eyes are more casual, not bright up. And then you kind of go slow, maybe start from, you know, uh, the side or from behind it, just kind of feel the end of its tail or whatever it is, or just gently kind of make your way to it, you can kind of you'll you'll start seeing it right away just how they are and it's, every step along the way you can take in information and if um you know get it doesn't it i don't know i might be biased because it's something i've just been around so much and i think um you know it's it's something that i've have a natural skill set for just kind of understanding animals uh from experience and just i think innately maybe but uh you know once you work with some it's it's not hard to start figuring it out you know you you start seeing it and it really starts making sense. It's gonna be slightly different from maybe a lizard to a dog, but the overall picture there's a lot of parallels there you, you see a lot of the same kind of thing
1: so say that you meet a genie tomorrow and you get three wishes and these wishes oh, are for being able to change something for animal welfare animal well-being. Anywhere in the world, like what would your three wishes be?
2: Hmm. Man, if, if we could, if we could, if we could make it so everybody could have a little more empathy for all sides of the table, that would go a long way. And I include myself and Westerners for empathizing or sympathizing at least with you know, people that live around wildlife and poach them. And then same thing on the other side. And just, I think that would go a long way. And if we could uh, eliminate or at least reduce the amount of greed in the world, that would go a long way. I mean, all the bad stuff, it's all fueled by greed. I said money earlier, but it's, it comes down to money. is just the the physical form of the greed, you know, Um, but it's greed. So if we can, you know, if we can get people to be more content with, you know, the blessings they do have, and be a little less greedy, and we, we can, you know, there's ways to still win. You can still do well in business and not, you know, screw our planet and and screw our wildlife. You know, um, so yeah, those would be two of them. A the third one, man. Um, I would wish that there was an international language spoken language that everybody in the world understands and helps people communicate amongst different parts of the world um, with this notion of the lowered greed and increased empathy, man, that would just go such a long way if we could all just communicate and be on the same page and understand each other because uh, so much of it's miscommunication too.
1: So as who I would consider the best exotic animal veterinarian, wild animal vet. Um, what is your your like sage words of advice for someone that's listening, like whether they have in like maybe one of those pocket pets, like we talked about, they have a reptile. Like, what are what is something you would want them to know?
2: I'm so glad you asked that. I have to back up. I have to say, I will not. I can't accept that uh, being the best exotic. I appreciate that you feel that way, but trust me, man, I've worked with some incredible vets. And um, that you can just learn so much from these these guys and gals, and uh, but uh, I appreciate that. Um, uh, yeah, that's such an important question, and I talk about this all the time. And it is, please, for these animals and for you, do your research before you get these animals. Know what you're getting into, because if you get a chameleon, or and you you, you want to know about UV light and ambient humidity and temperature. And uh, ventilation, and diet, and stress, and photoperiod. If you get fish, I really need you to know about the biological filtration cycle with an aquarium. It's not complicated, but you need to know about it. If you get a rabbit, please know that they're social animals. You know, all these different species, they have certain needs. And most of these animals are pretty tough. Some of them aren't as durable, and they're, they're more delicate, and it's a really challenging. Chameleons are one of the more challenging you know, animals to care for in captivity. But a bearded dragon's pretty durable. And if you provide its needs, and adequate UV light, and you know, the temperature, humidity, and all the, you know, the diet, everything, they do pretty darn well in captivity for the most part. Um, but if you don't, we run into issues. And I, as a veterinarian, especially one that works with, you know, exotics, and exotic pets, and some of these pocket pets, uh, one of the biggest reasons I see a lot of these animals, especially reptiles, is 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 um you know, ignorance, to put it lightly. It's just people just don't, they don't know what they're getting into. They're not providing the needs that this animal needs, and they're doing a disservice to themselves and the animal. Now the animal has illness and, and pain, and now you have to spend more money, and now we have to learn the hard way uh, what, you know, what you should have been doing from the get-go that would have most likely prevented this kind of thing. So, But I say even for dogs, cats, do your research. Please know what you're getting into. Know what the expectations are. What kind of time, money, space, resources, everything. Is it realistic for you? Can you provide the right life for this animal? And if you know what you're getting into and you think you can, by all means, please do. Uh, I guess the, to add on to that, the other thing would be there's a lot of great rescues, not just for dogs and cats, but for exotics, birds and reptiles all over the country. So if you do think you'd like one of these pets, there's tons of great bearded dragons and, and corn snakes and all kinds of you know parrots and, and, and animals that need homes. And and you could rescue one and adopt one and and, and give it that good life. So do your research, know what you're getting into, and please check rescue. Because for, like we talked about earlier with the relinquished animals, Mm -hmm. a lot of reptiles and other animals are too. Even some of these less exotic or wild kind of things, they're, they're in these rescues and shelters too.
1: Really, really great advice. So Evan, if someone is interested in following you or finding out more about you and your work, where can they find you?
2: Yeah, Instagram's a great place to see what I do. Uh, it's uh, Dr. Evan Anton, so D-R period, Evan Anton, E-V-A-N-A-N-T-I-N on uh, in Instagram. Um, and then Evan Anton on Facebook, I put a lot of similar stuff. It's kind of different audiences, so I put a lot of the same stuff there. So if you're more Facebook, check out my Facebook at facebook.com slash Evan Anton. Uh, Instagram is Dr. Evan Anton. And then if you want to learn about some crazy adventures and, and learn a little bit more about our wildlife and its conservation and some wild stories I've had. Uh, I wrote a book, World Wild Vet, and um, you can buy that on uh, Barnes & Noble, I think Amazon, a few a few of the big distributors, That that is available. And I read the audiobook too. So if you're more of a listener, I read that. And um, yeah.
1: Thank you so much, Evan. This is such a pleasure.
2: No, it's so fun getting to have a good good long conversation with you, Mikkel. Thank you for joining us for Happy Paws. We hope you continue tuning in as
0: we explore more about your pets. Next time on Happy Paws, we're excited to be joined by Lori Kogan, Professor of Clinical Sciences for the College of Veterinary Medicine. As a world-renowned expert on grief and loss with pets, Lori brings real understanding and expertise on the experiences of pet loss, as well as some actual items for those looking to understand, prepare for, and recover from the loss of their pet. Make sure you subscribe to avoid missing out on any upcoming Happy Paws episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you took a minute and left us a review. For more content like this and much more, visit us at fearfreehappyhomes.com. Our music is by 310. That's the number 3, the word 1, and the word 0. Follow them on Instagram at 310official and listen to them on Spotify or wherever else you find your music.